there it is, Alex Ross in a brand new Mazda CX-9. It's Carco Carney. I can't even see how we look because the glare is so intense right now. It's gorgeous out. Maybe if I do this. How are we looking? I, it's It was fine for me. Okay. So don't worry uh, about it. Carco Carney presented by the Audubon Mazda of Evanston. This CX-9 that we're in, it's funny. I was driving on the Edens to come meet you, Alex Ross. And I thought, oh, this loaner car that the Autobarn gave me, uh, it's broken. The speedometer's broken. It says I'm going 78 miles an hour. Then I realized, okay, I'm going 78 miles an hour. It accelerates so beautifully and so flawlessly. I wasn't even aware I was going so fast because it accelerates so well. Uh, and the safety features, as I was going 78, a little bit over the speed limit, don't do that at home. Uh, I love the fact that it tells me if I'm driving in my lane or if there are people in my blind spot. The safety features are extraordinary. This car handles like a dream. Autobarn Mazda of Evanston, 1015 Chicago Avenue. Alex Ross, are you ready to do this thing? Yes, sir. All right. It's Car Con Carne. So we tried, I swear to God, we tried to find, to agree on a place to do this. We're recording <laughs> on Easter Sunday. Yes. I did my best. Um, strangely enough, a lot of places not open on Easter. Yes, yes. A lot of places you wouldn't think of, like uh, Superdog. I thought Superdog's universal. Yeah. 365. Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh, so we're getting food today from a Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the path of least Which resistance. Is my most common fast food, honestly. It kind of is for me, too. Yeah. Uh, I'm having the barbecue sriracha sandwich. And I am having the turkey Reuben. Turkey Reuben. Happy Passover. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's funny, Alex. I'm watching you on Seth Meyers last year, a few months ago. And as I'm watching him, I'm thinking, Alex Ross is living his best life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get crazy here. Come on. That was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And he's a fan. Yes, yes. <laughs> I should embellish more of this. No, so, I mean, um, would you, can you confirm that you are, in fact, living your best possible life? Oh, boy. I, I think I know what that means, and I don't like all the implications of that, because there's, there's all the things that you would wish you had done and projects. Like, I view it from a creative level of, like, have I done all the things I could create or do, stories I could tell, and I know what things I haven't fulfilled. But then again, there's the things I have, and maybe I'm only able to give so much. So, you know, for me, that's almost a complicated thing to bring up. Well, I want to talk about the things that you haven't yet fulfilled. We should mention that there is a museum exhibit yes. of your work happening right now at the Dunn Museum in Libertyville. I've been to it. It's the Marvelocity exhibit. I guess my first thought when I saw there was a museum exhibit was, well, I guess what took so long? Because I've seen art gallery shows that you've done. Oh, well, then you're not familiar with the fact that we've had some other exhibits outside of Illinois. So uh, the first one happened in um, uh, <laughs> at, at the Warhol Museum, which is in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And from there, we went on to um, Massachusetts for uh, the Rockwell Museum. And there's been two different traveling shows that have happened over the last six years or more. And um, basically, that's sort of an overall kind of superhero assembly of my work. And this show here that we have in town, or in the suburbs, 
is specific to this recent book release, mm-hmm. the one on Marvel. So it's only Marvel-related stuff, and mostly it's just stuff I created for the book that much of it is artwork I only created in 2017, or 2018, sorry, it's 2019 now. Yeah, um, so, uh, but this is bringing it home where I can actually see people I know yeah. at the exhibit and, and bring friends over like I will be this coming weekend. I've got alumni I'm entertaining over at the... Uh, Oh, people I went to school with I'm bringing over to the exhibit. Oh, that's very cool. Well, one thing I, I really appreciated, you did a, a signing, a, kind of a meet and greet at the exhibit about a month ago. Uh, you yeah. were magnanimous. I mean, you took your time with everybody. Like, I, I was watching you as we were approaching. I mean, especially with the kids. You were really great with the, the kids. Really, kind, Yeah. Oh. Oh, I'd like to hear that. That's nice. I, I, I It was cool to watch. Like, you, it felt very supportive and... Yeah. You know, like, you're drawing... I mean, here's this guy who did this painting of Spider-Man or Captain America, and he's kind of reaching out to the kids, and, you know, they're kind of wide-eyed, and it was cool to see. And let's put it in perspective. There's probably, like, five kids that were there out there of were the... There were a lot of parents... There were a lot of parents there with were, kids there. There were some parents, but it it is so much more that my market is the parents as opposed to the <laughs> children. The children are there trying to indoctrinate to make them care about buying comics, which we know isn't necessarily where their lives are taking them. Fair enough. I guess let's jump around then. What is the state of the industry? I, I'll tell you, cynically, I find it hard to wrap my arms around a lot of what's going on in comics right now. It seems overwhelming. Storylines, it seems like both major publishers are putting out more titles than anyone could possibly consume in a month. Right, yeah. And that's one of the things that's been breaking the back of the art form for the last 30 years. And we don't have enough people coming into it to buy those regular individual comics, but we have a huge amount of people that are interested in the art form, especially with the growth that's happened with young women. Mm-hmm. It's just that the storytelling has kind of shifted over into, obviously, manga has been a big part of that, but then a lot of the way that people are getting their comics is from libraries, they're getting them online, and they're not necessarily buying the individual releases. Right. So that part of what we might have grown up with is kind of losing some some help. But you would think the movies would elevate this, but it hasn't. I've talked to retailers, it. and they said that is not the case. Exactly, yeah. Which is crazy. You would think that someone would go see Shazam and then want to check out all that history, all that source material. Well, yeah, they also didn't make a lot of it available at the time, and especially because most of the source material is so removed from the version you see in the movie. That becomes an issue for all these films, is how much they readapt the content to fit a new aesthetic, and then it barely seems to have a, a symmetry with the original material. So where does Alex Ross fit in in the industry? I, I'm assuming you kind of... Actually, you know, if I can almost grab a hold of that, I know this is me taking over, but um, in a way, t- the idea of where do I fit in is I always perceived myself, aside from where I am in the market, but as far as what I'm giving to an audience, what I'm delivering to them is I'm trying to connect back with not just the version that I grew up with of things, these legends. I'm trying to present back a realistic, like here's as if an actor is portraying this part. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to give you that thing back from its earliest visual model. I'm trying to connect back with the history of this thing. And so for the fans that have been with it for many decades into later adulthood, that there's a consistency between what I do and interpreting interpreting the thing as those characters may have looked in their earliest incarnations in some cases. And that there's a history that's worth knowing and respecting that often gets lost in the advancement of the art form. And 
that's just the byproduct also that happens with different art styles. Everybody's mm-hmm. got to have a different artist drawing them over time. And then uh, actors getting associated with a character. Like one of the comments I got from a friend at the opening of this show was that um, he spoke to a man who was looking at my work, didn't really know my work, know a whole ton about comics, but that man said, well, how come these characters don't look like the movie actors? And that comment itself just rips me to shreds. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, that's the criteria of evaluation that's going on now. But that's where somebody like me is trying to still draw a connection back because whatever, when they cast a certain person, they do a certain redesign of these things for film or for just the modern comics, that somebody like me is there to try and connect back with what is Mm -hmm. the classical version of a thing because that can get lost. That's history that's getting trampled in some cases. I agree. Well, and even the historical perspective of the renumbering of comics. Like when Uh you and I were kids, comics followed the numerical progression. There was Fantastic Four number one all the way on up. Yeah. But there are restarts and and I don't even know where to begin. If, I, if I've fallen off for a year or two and try to dive back in, where do I look at the release date? How do I figure out where these stories fall? And it, it's maddening to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know Marvel's got a particular sin of doing that too much. Like I believe in the time that they've branded uh, Carol Danvers as the new Captain Marvel. Uh, in the time she's holding that name, um, they've restarted her book like three times. Yeah. That's <laughs> that's a little abusive at a certain point <laughs> of the marketplace, you know? Like, come on, you know, you're trying to get the goosing up of support and people jumping on, but at a certain point, you got to stay committed to, like, you've launched this book, keep going with it, stop trying to restart it. But their attitude is that, you know what, if it does anything, we're going to do that. We're going to restart it. And to be fair, we do kind of exist in this ADD culture. This, yes. And certainly yeah. an a la carte culture. Like, just grab what you want, piecemeal. I mean, music's like that now. People don't consume albums the way they used to. They consume individual songs. They're, the greater context is kind of lost. So I think that's true in comics as well. Absolutely. And for perspective, I can't even see... I can see you. Okay. I just want to make sure it's still running. I just wanted to show people, because <laughs> this podcast is a general podcast. It's not necessarily just for comic fans. I just wanted to, I brought some visual aids, just so people understand what we're talking about here. <laughs> this is the back cover of the DC collection mythology. That's mm-hmm. Batman. Look at that. There's Superman. Hang on. There's more. More visual aids. Now, this, this is a coffee table book. Kingdom Come. Collected. This is the hardest book to read in bed. Because it weighs about 50 freaking pounds. Oh, yeah. And I frequently read until I fall asleep every night, and sometimes the book will fall on my face. Don't read this in bed if that's... <laughs> and one of my all-time favorite covers, check this out, Angel from the X-Men. Look at that. Beautiful. On Marvels. So, going back to where you fit in, are you... I'm assuming you're at a point where you can kind of cherry-pick what you do. You can kind of curate your own professional experience. I can avoid drawing things I don't want to draw. And I've actually had to communicate in specifics to editors I work with about how I'm never drawing this or that thing. Like, I'm not drawing this new costume for this character because it offends me. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and the thing You is, are living your best life. But there's a, uh, well, you can call it that, that. But, I mean, I hate to be like that, honestly. I'd like to be supportive of everything equally and say, sure, why not? But, like, say, I have no interest in illustrating any of the movie versions of things because, in a way, my effort, which has been for these 30 years of my career, has been to... 
uh, bring things into a certain visual lifelike quality without having the aid of the, you know, I'm not working off of the photos provided by Hollywood. I have to shoot my own, my own models, my own interpretation of these things. And um, when they've made these things so perfect in the way they are for film now, well, what do you need an illustration by me of that? Mm-hmm. Let me try and left, lend my efforts to a version of something that's maybe being forgotten or overlooked. And maybe a certain physicality for a character. Like, here's one of the truths that we know about when they cast in Hollywood. They're never hiring people that are as big as these characters are. They're getting skinny actors and saying, bulk up. Yeah. Or, don't worry about bulking up. We're going to put the muscles on you in the suit. You know, for fans, we know Superman's a six-foot... Four guy with mass. Well, with your Superman body. was is always imposing. It's a big, big dude. It wouldn't mess with your. But Superman. artistically, I didn't make that up. That's what Superman had been, like dating back consistent. to yeah. Siegel and Schuster. Like right. So when Joe Schuster was drawing this guy in 1930s, going into when they you know had him appear in his own cartoon series, the Max Fleischer cartoons. That's a really thick looking guy and so graphically that kind of got weaned off in the years leading up to like say the first movie interpretation and I remember as a kid as much as I love Chris Reeve I was thinking he's kind of skinny isn't he (laughs) you know I wanted that guy and he put on a lot of muscle mass to make it really look believable but I was also envisioning a thick guy a really big guy and that generally is not what we're getting we're kind of accepting that we're not getting wrestlers hired as these parts, with the exception of Dave Bautista, who gets to play comic relief in a part, yeah. but isn't, you know, put Dave Bautista in a Batman outfit, and suddenly you go, oh, oh mm-hmm. right, that's what Batman's shaped like. Well, to me, The Rock makes sense as Black Adam. That's because we think that his sort of uh, uh, ethnic neutrality means that he could look as Egyptian as anybody else when... <laughs> I, <laughs> You know, like, sure, he's... I feel like he had that one saved up, that comment. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I, when I look at him, I see his country of origin. I see mm-hmm. where he's from and his features. And, you know, anyways, but I, I think it's great that he'll be playing Black Adam. I just, it's the thing of like, there's a, an Egyptian actor out there is like, I could have done that. Right, but, right. But the thing is, we're also, we're still casting within who we have. The Rock is getting the part because, or he's had the part for several mm-hmm. years, because of his importance to audiences he will get bodies into the theater mm-hmm. and that's largely what still guides it as far as adapting these things if they were all taken to the point of animation you start seeing the characters look like what they always were designed mm-hmm. to be these men that you know or women that um, that are built and shaped a certain way matching the artistic design I, I think talking about that historical through line the ascent of Alex Ross in the 90s the timing of your work arriving when it did, uh, was important because in the industry, art was going in a lot of weird places. It was the extreme decade. Uh, Anatomy wasn't really considered in that decade in a lot of (laughs) respects. The most radical thing I could do is just draw things to look normal. But what a breath of fresh air. I mean, I I think (laughs) you had the right style, the right vision at the right time. I mean, it just, it was a perfect storm. You would have been successful regardless, but I mean, you really were able to stake your claim because... I don't know what was going on then. I, I still think of Extreme Justice by DC, and I, that still makes me scratch my head. Well, the thing is, there were plenty of precedents to my coming in. The difference is, those guys, those extremely talented painters that 
really broke through the art form in the 80s had all kind of like abandoned it by the time I came around. I mean, you have a few exceptions, but like say, Bill Sienkiewicz, I wouldn't have a career really without the trailblazing that he did, mm -hmm. and Dave McKean, mm -hmm. and John Muth, and Kent Williams, and so basically all those people did their bits within superheroes painting graphic novel series, continuing that format that um, was kind of inaugurated with uh, Dark Knight Returns. Um, they didn't necessarily have the burning desire to want to paint superheroes their whole lives. Right. And I guess because I'm that kid looking at what they were doing, I was a teenager looking at it thinking, oh, yeah, that's my focus. I want to really make that better. But, you know, I, I want to apply the same reality or, or visualization to things. And um, so by the time I'm beginning to build up my concept for that in 1990, um, a lot of those projects are beginning to peter off. You've got a few things left over, but by the time Marvels is hitting in late 93, um, there's like me and Joe Jusco doing the Marvel Masterworks set of cards and not a whole lot else. Right. I'm probably forgetting some people's work, but um, yeah, there's a lot of painters that were doing this stuff, just not a lot of them kind of with the fanish uh, drive of like, I'm going to pee the painted superhero guy. Okay, I guess we're at the halfway point. I'm sitting here in a parking lot with Alex Ross, Carco Incarnate, presented by the Autobarn Mazda of Evanston. Back to Alex. Thinking, of, I was uh, leaving a movie uh, end of last year, and that was when I first saw the movie poster for Glass, which you did. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about your relationship with M. Night Shyamalan. Do you, do, you, do you think that relationship? relationship. Do, do you think that relationship will have a surprise twist ending? <laughs> if there's any more relationship, that will be the surprise twist ending. Sure. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, he was very gracious to me, almost 20 years ago when the movie was about to come out in 2000, and then here we are, right? Um, 19 years later, yeah, I think when um, the movie comes out again. So last year, I was on the phone with him, working up the poster based upon his specific directions and I had a concept that I pitched him and then it worked together just fine um, but when he was actually filming the movie I did work that appeared in the film and there I was before when he's actually in the thick of it is when I couldn't directly communicate with him I'm going through an art director and which worked out fine I had to create a phony comic book cover that appears in the movie and it actually is like a story point which I almost would think you know what I'll do all this work I'll put it in there, and then it'll never get used. That's a lot of way Hollywood, a lot of the way sure, that Hollywood sure. works. But it, um, but otherwise, yes. I and I did uh, uh, write to him when I when the movie came out to compliment him on how I thought it turned out. But um, otherwise, no, I don't have him on speed dial, and you know we're not buddy buddy. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, we could talk at length. We don't need to because it's been discussed so many in so many other places about your use of life models. I'm thinking I could probably be a life model. Like, thinking maybe anybody like, could. Maybe like a Baron Mordo. Now that I've got the beard, you're not bald enough for Baron Mordo. How about the chief from Doom Patrol? Uh, sure. I, yeah. yeah but you know what? You mentioned something like that. That was one of the simplest things for me to realize how I could use a specific model and translate what they're their physical details are to what I could use. With the chief, it would be, I just have to change your hair to red. Mm -hmm. Simple thing, right? Well, it takes your brain clicking into that to go, all right, I could do that. That's simple. Uh, when I was working in advertising, I have this very good-looking friend who's doing the same job as me there, and he, um, he seemed like, oh, he could be the perfect Steve Rogers or any number of blonde superhero characters. And 
at some point it's the eureka moment of like change his hair to black and he's superman use that guy so that's your model for and that was my model for superman i love that but he first posed for me as uh the original human torch and then eventually um as um captain america and so on and you know basically all these major big hulking heroes in marvels he was them first before he wound up being the uh, kind of center of the kingdom come series i think my phone actually overheated until the, <laughs> wow that's crazy my i'm not surprised that's wow wow did it stop recording it did that's so crazy well, device overheating moment. I'm going to begin eating. Yeah, I mean, we're still sandwich. recording a podcast. That's fine. Wow. That's a first. That's fine. We'll keep the conversation going. But now there's no visual of my stuffing food into my mouth, so... That's probably a good thing. Yeah. Uh, can I get you to riff on some of your more iconic stuff? If I just throw out some previous works and get your first impressions? Oh, yeah. Let's start with Marvel's. Well, which for I mean, a lot of us, that's how we first hooked into you. And just so you know, I mean, my my head is flush with that currently because of that's been much of my year. Um, first off, that beginning of the year, we've been writing. Uh, Kurt Busiek and I have been writing annotated notes to come out in uh, re-releases of the comics, where it gives kind of an answer for who I may have been using as models or all the backstory of certain things, all the research went into it. So we've been doing stuff like that while we've been building up to working on a brand new story which is going to be released as its own comic. Oh, wow. That's just going to be called Marvel's Epilogue. Oh, and that's awesome. I photographed my model uh, f- uh, for Phil Sheldon, the lead character. I photographed him and his daughter, one of his two daughters last week who's in town, and the second daughter is posing for the same story, uh, although she's out in California, and uh, supposedly they'll be taking those photos today, right now, in fact, for uh, my work. So starting this week, going through all of May and into June, likely, I'll be painting a new short story. That's, that's really exciting. Uh, a wrap-up for Marvel. So I'm living Marvels right now. That's amazing. At the 25th anniversary. I showed the coffee table book, Kingdom Come. I mean, that that was obviously a major turning point for you. Yes. in uh, Kingdom Come was sort of the plan of what could I do with DC different or or much as what I just did with Marvel I was planning it out while I was working on Marvels and then um, you know I went across the aisle to you know I didn't I was never mistreated by Marvel Comics in a way that I would say suddenly jump from one publisher to the other nobody was wooing me or anything like that it was really like intellectually well I had this idea that involved the Marvel characters and you know in part an idea that was built with Kurt Busiek and then I knew I wanted to create a very intimate sort of approach to the DC characters that would get more involved with them more up close more instead of seeing them from a strong distance seeing them more intimately Um, and that project was it would seem like I you know jumped ship but it was never the intention of um, I've got to leave Marvel for any reason it's like well I did Marvel now I got to do DC because I might only live so long. <laughs> <laughs> does, does dystopian stuff interest you? No, no. I, I well, dystopian in terms of the future. Yeah, well, I, I think that, about uh, Kingdom Come. I mean, I what's dystopian in terms of? I mean, in a way, honestly, the future of Kingdom Come was really just a caricature of the present, because 
Um, you don't see a whole lot of the way the future looks in Kingdom Come, and aside from images and, and details that are vis- visible in the first issue, beyond that point, when you see humanity, it largely looks the same. Fashions, whatever. I wasn't given people like crazy 20 years ahead of time fashions. Mm-hmm. And my biggest thing is that if there's this growth of superhumanity where there's thousands of superhumans all across the globe running around doing whatever they do, getting fights, causing wrecks, whatever, humanity would be stuck in a lack of forward motion because they're spending all their time repairing what goes wrong from all these superhumans destroying property and you know basically there's not these enormous advancements Mm -hmm. that are happening in the meanwhile and plus I really just wanted the Kingdom Come story it was under the veneer of it's in the future it's actually really the present day and now in this concept the heroes the classic heroes are more the age of their legends you know back in 1996 when kingdom come came out superman would have been 56 58 years mm-hmm. old in terms of his legend so that's the guy you're seeing in the story i love that you know so that was what i was after i'm going to jump around and not to disrespect your entire body of work but just a couple of key things <laughs> um the obama t-shirt yes that, that got a lot of attention. Uh, back when positive ideas seemed to sell, sure. <laughs> yeah, pre the current dystopia. Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're living in dystopia, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's what it looks like. Uh, how about, uh, I love all the licensed property stuff you've done, like Bionic Man and all, all that yeah. All that stuff. Is it fun? I mean, we're the same age, Well, you know what's weird about that, too, is just working on so many licensing things is the feeling of, like, am I literally going to be able to check off every box of every pop culture thing that ever (laughs) touched my life? I didn't expect it or plan it. You know, I thought I'd stick a lot of these influences into the backgrounds of my work. Mm -hmm. But here, I've worked on these things like, who would have thought I'd ever be able to draw a Lee Majors series set in 1978 when I think the show was off the air? Like, how is that happening? But it happened. And Green Hornet. Yeah. Who, to me, was always one of the more visually interesting. I, I love that pulp stuff. I love just the whole look of Green Hornet. And, of course, stuff like that, I had to cheat where um, the actual series I did that crossed over um, 66 Batman with Green mm-hmm. Hornet, um, they didn't have the license for um, either of the two actors with Green Hornet. So interesting. So if I'm making it look like Van Williams, that's with the whole thing of like, no, I'm not. He's got a mask on. You know, but I'm doing everything possible to make it look like Van and Bruce Lee and kind of cheat it past DC being more concerned about it when, in fact, they're not the license holder, they're not the publishers using the license, but they figure, like, somebody's going to sue us, so cover up that likeness. One of the covers has big face shots of the four characters, and... um, I had to kind of gloss over in the artwork um, the faces of um, Bruce Lee and Van Williams with more like rays of light to sort of obscure their likenesses, which I just went straight for and said, like, you know what, this is the fifth cover, to hell with it. I'm making it look 100% like them, you know. Awesome. So, <laughs> Anyway, sorry. To kind of put a bow on everything, Alex. And I'm eating. I have a lot of people, I have a lot of musicians who listen to this podcast, uh, just a wide variety of people. You were at the top of your field and you've done it all seemingly on your own terms for someone like i I think there are universal things we can learn from this for someone who is trying to ascend in his or her chosen artistic field 
Is there a piece of advice you can impart? No. <laughs> no, I actually, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I've read this from other people who've said, like, if you needed to hear from me and get some kind of roadmap, then you're not going to be able to <clears throat> drive yourself because you, you would have so much your own fire and vigor to drive you. I don't know what would be the right thing to do. Like, if I say, be stubborn and stick to your guns, that might be the worst bit of advice I could give is like be flexible when you should be flexible I worked on jobs I wish I didn't mm -hmm. just to keep a door open sure you know like uh, as an example I worked on this one Hellraiser job it was a one issue story back in 1992 I think that came out before I was working full time on Marvels but it was actually just kind of secure that like I'm working with the same editor who will edit Marvels and I don't really want to do this job because I'm not really interested in that particular kind of horror I yeah. like horror but not that kind and it, it, it was a job to keep that door open. So do what you can to get your foot in and keep your active hand in. And then when you've got your chance to prove yourself or, or to do things the way that you would want to deliver them, you know, take advantage of that opportunity to show off what you're best at, you know, and then be passionate and be... Um, you know, if you're if you're making choices that are saying I do this and not that, reserve that for the time where you can have that kind of platform sure. in some ways. That's good advice. Is it against no. your, against I your own know. expectation? That's good advice. I I don't know. I don't know. All right, so Libertyville, <laughs> the Dunn Museum, yes, Marvelocity. Uh, you can buy the book there. You can see the artwork there. Uh, you can see the stuff you did as a kid, which is alarmingly good for a kid your age. Uh, it's interesting, you know, I, I've talked about this before. There are some kids you grew up with, and you just knew what they were going to do for the rest of their life. Like, I went to um, high school with Todd Zuckerman, who's now the drummer of Sticks. I knew when he was 13 he would mm -hmm. be a professional drummer. Like, he just, some kids just have that obvious skill or aptitude, and you just know, oh, they're going to ride that to the end. And mm -hmm. that clearly was your case as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So this guy who's been performing with them, touring for the last Since the years. late 90s, yeah. Since the late 90s. Well. Yeah, the, the original drummer died. And right. Yeah. He was doing session work for them, and he took over. And I think he's probably been in sticks longer than the original. Oh, sure. Though. I'm yeah. aware of stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So And they tour very regularly? Oh, yeah. They were just in Waukegan a few months ago. Oh, fantastic. I know they do a great show. I've watched one of their shows uh, as it's been recorded, and uh, this is always with Tommy. In, yeah, yeah. Ahead of it, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's yeah. No, I know. And the, the other guy that sings uh, does a really Lawrence Gowron. Yeah, he's a mega like super talented Canadian dude. Won a bunch of awards in Canada. He's he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, they do a great show. And see, hearing those songs again is oh, uh -huh. very inspiring. Um, the point, like I, I kind of knew when I was in high school, I, I couldn't really display the aptitude. But I kind of knew I wanted to be in radio. Like mm -hmm. they're just you kind of lock it in. And there are some kids who it's just plainly obvious that's who they're going to be because they're already that person mm -hmm. and seeing that exhibit the marvelosity exhibit in libertyville it's quite clear and, i mean there are examples of it in things like the dc uh book of your early artwork that's just, you've always been drawing that's just it, it is who you are yeah yeah that's uh you know some of it can come down to when you're entertaining yourself growing up you're trying to create imagery that is uh there to preoccupy your creative brain when I, I feel like in some ways I'm benefited by the fact that I didn't have the best television distractions or frankly the best human relationships to keep most of my time occupied because I would often 
have these best friends wherever I lived where like, oh, the, the house across the street has some kids living in it and, oh, it's a rental house, so then they move the year later and so those friendships are over with. And mm-hmm. then, or you get a friend who's halfway across town and it's difficult to schedule so you don't see them every week. And so having your time occupied by either a similar age sibling or close friend nearby, I never had that consistently and I would always lament that. So then I'd spend all my time creating this stuff that would build up a body of work um, and then eventually kind of make me ready to live the lifestyle I have where I barely go out and just sit at the desk all the time. <laughs> See, it, but for me, it was similar. I was an only child. Uh-huh. And so when I didn't have friends to hang out with, I was in my room listening to music nonstop. Uh-huh. I wasn't creating, but I was immersing myself and digging deep into albums and memorizing release dates and record labels and all that stuff. So I get that. Like that, uh-huh. that was that was my, my escape, my creative release. I was just digging into music and maybe I don't know I fear this in some ways that like for the average person if you just have like YouTube alone which pretty much everybody's got a computer it seems and everybody can access that like you've we got all have a computer endless, in our pocket at this point <laughs> you've got an endless amount of entertainment to distract you now maybe that doesn't work for every mind where you have to actually have a period of time where you sit down and you just you have to focus and sort of spew back out that influence that's been something mm-hmm. you've been sucking in And so maybe the creative person who's going to be driven is going to just, it's going to manifest itself naturally. But I worry in some ways that you can almost have too much entertainment. Oh, I think that's a fair, fair thing to say (laughs) for sure. All right. So in summary, Libertyville, the Dunn Museum, Marvelocity, uh, what's the subtitle? The work of Alex Ross? The, there is a subtitle for it, isn't it? I think just the art of Alex Ross. The art of Alex Ross. That's right. Uh, you're amazing. Thank you for doing this. Oh, it's over? Really? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Oh, sure, sure. I I thought we were going to do this for like an hour and a half. Really? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> uh, eat your pastrami sandwich. Uh, Alex Ross, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It is Carcone Carney presented by the Audubon Mazda of Evanston. If you like what you heard, please, by all means, tell a friend.